What's up, my miners of intelligence and consciousness? I'm Rick Brooks, and this is Rick's Mind. Today with me, I have guest Ruth Ben-Ghiat. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and author of the book Strongmen. What's going on, Ruth? Thanks for, thanks for joining the show today. Sure, it's a pleasure. So one of the things that um, I, I think a good place to start right um, is is to kind of get your story of um, how you became a professor and, and your, your interest in studying fascism. So give, give our listeners a little bit of the background, and then from there we'll kind of move into uh, where, where you think we are um, within a historical context. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I grew up in California, in Southern California, at a beach town, so pretty far from uh, any kind of dictatorship. And when I was in high school, I started hearing about these refugees from Nazism, um, the pretty famous ones, like the composer Arnold Schoenberg or the writer Thomas Mann, these like big intellectuals. And they all seemed to have settled in or around um, my town, which is near Malibu, um, near the beach. And so I got really interested um, in what, what was it that forced these people to leave their successful lives and have to transfer like around, you know, halfway around the world. So in college at UCLA, I started, you know, thinking, studying dictatorships. And I wrote a thesis on um, this one conductor, Otto Klemperer, who had to leave Berlin. He was very famous and he came, you know, to, um, to Southern California and, and so just the human drama of what it means to have your, your country become this uh, racist hellhole and have to leave, that interested me. And then I ended up specializing in Italy because one of my professors said, you know, there's so much less done on Italy and it lasted twice as long. So, um, you know, there's more space to do like original things. So that's how it got started. And little did I know it was going to be all so relevant now. Um, so I published, you know, books. So I was basically doing scholarly stuff. And, um, and then Trump came on the scene. And I saw his rally and him doing his loyalty oath and kind of talking about racism. And I thought, uh-oh, this is very familiar. And that's, that's how I started doing public stuff. Okay. Okay. It's, then that's, that is something that I've found um, with regard to the Donald Trump and his supporters. That is, so, I've never seen anything like that in my life. The amount of like loyalty and uh, I, I'm looking for a, a good word, like, f- like fever, uh, fervor, whatever, a rats that surrounded him. I've never seen anything like that. Mm-hmm. He's, he's a very polarizing figure. Uh, and so that's kind of what, in, in your opinion, that's when the alarms went up and you're like, okay, I got to start speaking out, correct? Yes, it was, it was seeing this demagogue because obviously we have, <laughs> this was a country that had slavery, had institutionalized racism. Um, so, but, so all of those things I knew from my studies, the existing kind of racisms and hatreds can get kind of energized when these demagogues come on the scene. So here comes Trump, who immediately I saw was different than any other political figure. And he just, everything he did was extremely familiar to me in the rallies, the loyalty oaths, the, um, making kind of appealing to every kind of extremist. So in already in the fall of 2015, I wrote this um, op-ed for CNN and I wanted to call it Trump's race war because it was like, again, this is 2015. It was very obvious what he was trying to do, which was to, he kind of scanned the political marketplace to see what, you know, what was missing. And he saw that it was ripe for somebody to take all these kinds of extremists, all these malcontents, all these racists, and make them feel elevated, make them feel, and he said, I love you. You're forgotten. You're forgotten no longer. And this is what all of these fascists and demagogues do. So I thought, I have a skill set. I'm recognizing this stuff. And sometimes I would write op-eds, and I was so early that nobody would accept them. 
Like I wrote a piece January 2016 um, saying that Trump was going to have a personality cult and if he got the nomination, we were in big trouble. And nobody wanted this piece because they were like, what are you talking about? It's January 2016. He's hardly started his campaign. I just saw it really clearly. So I opened a blog at HuffPost, which you could do at the time. And that's how I got it published. Like I published it myself, basically. Because oh, yeah, yeah. nobody wanted this thing. They couldn't see what I could see. Yeah, that And that's, it. I think, I mean, part of that problem, right, and not being able to see is because I feel like the amount of, sh like, let's say, shade, right, um, for mm -hmm. lack of a better, a better word, that the media was throwing on him actually did him a lot of favors. No one took um his campaign seriously and mm -hmm. just the the being a political outsider an underdog right like that all kind of fed into uh his campaign and and it works so it's very um interesting and that you were able to to kind of pick this up and i'm assuming kind of a uh, from a, a modern a modern standpoint a sort of a political outsider right so that like kudos to totally. you for 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 seeing that yeah a lot a lot of um and as it turned out, then I, you know, did this book Strongman that came out in 2020. So I did, you know, research on all of these demagogues and stuff. And a lot of them come from outside of politics. And they had, like, Mussolini was a journalist. Um, Hitler wanted to go to art school. Mobutu in the Congo was a journalist. And so they're able to communicate really well, but they're able to use propaganda. And so they, they, they position themselves as a kind of outsider figure and a new figure and they excite people because they speak differently than than classic politicians and they use media differently than classic politicians um and it's very interesting when trump started lying um there are these studies that show that because he positioned himself as like a rogue figure like a rule breaker some people kind of liked the fact that he was stretching the truth because that was part of his, like giving, saying F you to the establishment. So, and it's the same with when he was right before the election, when the Access Hollywood tapes came out and he was like, you know, talking about women and, you know, being sexual assaulter and people said, oh, that's gonna end his career. And I was like, uh oh, it might actually help it because he's already been established as the rule breaker, the transgressor. So, this outsider rogue business that you that you brought up is actually really important. It is. It it, uh, and I and that kind of leads me into the, you know, the next portion of of what I want to discuss with you is when you have a, a world that, in my opinion, it's it's. It's in a little bit of chaos, right? We've got war for the first time in Europe. We've, we're having, you know, issues with Saudi Arabia, China. Um, there's a lot going on geopolitically. And I, I, I'm trying to figure out where we are, all of us are, within a historical context, right? Are we in the 19, like 1910s, 1911, right before World War One? Are we in 1936? Like, when you take a look at the political landscape domestically and uh, also geopolitically, where, in your opinion, do you think we, uh, where do you think we are? Yeah, we, I'm so glad you asked that. We are in this, we're living through this historical time. It, it's it's unbelievable. And that's why many people are exhausted and they're like, just want to check out because everything's very intense. Because on the one hand, authoritarianism is spreading. Yeah. And you have these guys, like I, I had a feeling Putin was going to do something um, because they're, they're aging out a lot of these guys. They are having to use more repression. Um, Putin was becoming very unpopular so when they're in that stage where they start feeling maybe they're gonna, they've reached their peak, they do reckless things. Um, and in fact, uh, in my final chapter of my book, it's called Gambling for Resurrection. That's, they do like a big gesture. So, on the, so what we're seeing right now is authoritarianism is spreading, but these regimes are being revealed to be weaker than people thought. So look what's happened to Putin. He starts this war and then it's huge that the Russian military, which was everyone was supposed to be afraid of, is is effed up. Yeah, you said I could 
use be you, frank you, right you can use you could yeah you could say fuck yeah, yeah. you're good <laughs> it's 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 that's and that's an enormous thing that has happened and this is why putin has nowhere to go but become more and more you know aggressive and then look what's happened in china where it, it's a very different situation but you had protests um and so these these regimes are being revealed to be really in a way weak and that unfortunately is going to drive them to be more aggressive on the other hand we don't talk about this enough but we're living through this global renaissance protest and 2019 was a record year for nonviolent protest around the world and since then look what we had like even in the pandemic black lives matter was the largest social movement in american history it had 20 million people participated in a black lives matter event and there was multigenerational multiracial that's like a really big deal and oh, now yeah. look at iran i mean those people going out day after day in iran they're they've been killing thousands of them and they're still going out so it's like everything's coming to a head um in a way because again you have more repression because i think these dictators fear that i think they know secretly they're it's not sustainable like putin's kleptocracy isn't sustainable and he knows it and then you have the, this incredible move generations new generations who are protesting so that's where i think we are it's 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 every day i look at the news and i'm like my god what a time to be alive and that, that's exactly i i echo some of the same things um you know the same sentiments right you have especially within the the movement in iran you have young old you have you know uh, you have just the youth saying oh, we want freedom like and a lot of people that and we've we've had um a guest uh, iranian dissidents on this podcast before mm-hmm. but a lot of people don't realize it used to be a very liberal society right in the 60s and there there there's yeah. still people that are alive that remember what it was like before it was the Islamic Republic when they were under the the kind of the rule of the Shah or we can even go back to the 50s and I'm going to butcher the guys John I'm actually going to need you to pull him up because I can't think of his name right now but um uh, the guy that tried to nationalize oil um and then you know with regard to Xi Jinping um uh basically becoming a modern day emperor you know <laughs> I don't Now, I don't know how sustainable that is. I think that um I think that something is is going to happen, right? Whether whether it's the people cuz they mm-hmm. they are starting to to protest. There's also if you um if you want to get way into the weeds, there's a lot of Chinese people that are f- filming the for lack of a better term concentration camps that are yes. in these far out provinces and putting it on youtube like you can't stop that level you can't repress you can repress people but like that your dirty laundry is going to get out because of technology um and I, john i don't know if you might be able to link some of these like videos of people driving oh, to these provinces yeah, it's really it's it's really freaky yeah. and, and I, but, were you talking about mohammed masada No, 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 no. That I uh, just type in like Iranian nationalized oil to okay. 1950 or something. I can't. Mohammad Mossadegh. I think that's his name. Mossadegh. Well, one of the one of the things I the reason I wanted to write this book Strongman about 100 years of authoritarianism is to show what stays the same and what changes. And on the one hand, social media and kind of information warfare um makes it easier to dis- distribute disseminate propaganda much easier much faster but <laughs> it's also created all of these we can call them citizen journalists um people with smartphone cameras and it's very difficult to control those people and in fact in China the protest started because you know people um this experience of of lockdown had um created an entire like millions and millions of people who felt very frustrated with the government and when they heard about the apartment fire in far away you know this far away province perhaps they normally wouldn't care and that's the same province where the um concentration camps are but they felt really badly so they started to have these candlelight vigils like in Shanghai and other places and they were they were put on social media and that's what that's what caused it to spiral um so 
That's why, of course, so many dictators, you know, temporarily or permanently, you know, ban certain platforms, um, use them to track people. Um, TikTok's a big problem because it, it, you know, it can record your data and your location and stuff. So it's a double-edged sword, but I think that um, it, it, it's, it's hugely helping this kind of mass protest that we've been talking about. Absolutely. What what are some of the you know the reoccurring themes that you that are that emerge within dictators? Like, are there certain you know levels of dictators? I, I, I this is something I really haven't given a ton of thought to, but I'm super interested in. Well, you see, um, certain personalities uh, who are ruthless and opportunistic, and they will be anything to anyone. They will say anything to anyone they are the types of amoral personalities who gain power. And very unfortunately for America, I saw that Trump had the same personality as these other people. Now the outcome obviously is very different today. We don't have as many one party states outside you know, communist countries, but somebody who will stop at nothing to get to power and who, for example, Trump he had he was very different than any president of any other party because his goals were autocrat goals he wanted to make money off of the presidency so he spent one out of every three days visiting trump branded properties not governing in the white house he was visiting his businesses and then he wanted to radicalize you know people through racism so he he worked really really hard at his propaganda. So when people say that he was lazy, I'm like, no, he wasn't lazy. He just had different goals. He was tweeting like 120 times a day. I know. <laughs> so he, he worked really hard at certain things like fleecing people. You know, these are autocrat things: corruption, propaganda, <laughs> intimidating the party, getting control of the GOP, which is a huge story, like he managed to take this party and make it his personal tool, right? Um, so, so that kind of personality recurs. The other thing, just I'll mention one other thing, is this victimhood complex. All of them have to be the victim. And in fact, in the book, I have this incredible poster from the 1920s, a Nazi party poster, because, so Hitler, you know, he comes up and he, he does his putsch, fails, he goes to prison, finally comes out and he's speaking and he's a very, you know, compelling speaker, but the state authorities, different German states, they saw what a danger he was, so they banned him from public speaking. So the Nazi party issued this poster, which was literally Hitler canceled. He has tape over his mouth in the poster from 1926 to 27. And it says, of all the people in Germany or all the people in the whole world, only I am, you know, banned from speaking. So all of these guys are the victims. That's part of them being the outsiders too. And that sets them up against the establishment, against elites, against democratic elites. It, it feeds into their use of conspiracy theories, right? I'm banned and it's the Jews. Who's, who are the enemies out to get me? It's, Today, it's the deep state. Today, it's the EU or it's NATO for Putin. Back then, it was the League of Nations for the fascists. So every single one of these guys, take Erdogan in Turkey, he's talking about witch hunts all the time, and people out to get him, people insulting him. So when Trump <laughs> comes up and he's like, it's like checking the boxes with this guy. He comes up and he's like, I'm the most persecuted person in the whole world. Uh, I was like, I wrote a piece for my newsletter and I'm like, oh, well, so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so said they've been the most persecuted person in the whole world. So these are these things that recur and people fall for them every time. Why do you think that is? Because <laughs> it's, it, it's something that, that is fascinating me. I mean, on one hand, I think, uh, I think that, certain people are thinking, uh, all right, like we just need a change. And in, in the case of Putin, um, you know, I don't really understand how that is. I mean, maybe you just accept it, but, but let's use Trump, for example. Um, it's, it's an outsider. Maybe he's going to change things and let's just kind of, let's just see what happens type of deal. Is that generally the, the, the sense you get in your studies or is it something that's a little bit more deeply seated in, in the, in the human psyche? It's both. Because for some people, the, these guys are, they're charismatic. They, 
really know how to um, use emotion to, they're, they're performers. So they use emotion to connect with people. When Trump says, like, Trump's saying on January 6th, he loves, he loves, I love you, I love you. And he was telling these people, you are, you're the forgotten, nobody has cared about you in 2016, I care about you. And so he's so all-powerful and so supposedly rich and he's got everything everybody, every man would want, beautiful women, riches. So when someone like that reaches out, supposedly caring about the little man, that is very compelling. So that's part of it. And they know how to put on a show. They know how to speak. They know how to use media. They, all of them are, are, have been extremely, like Modi in India, you know, he was making holograms of himself to use at rallies and go and check out his Instagram. He Instagrams his life in a very skillful manner. So they really know what they're doing with communication, with emotion, their personality cults, they're, they're the man of the people, but they're the man above all other men. So you admire them. So that's part of it. But there's also the racism where they consciously appeal to um, people who want to have an enemy and that differs in different contexts, right? Um, in India, you know, Modi is uh, the engine of Hindu nationalism against Muslims. So anti-Muslim is a big thing all over the world. Um, in China, those are the people in the concentration camps. And for Trump, it was Muslims too, um, but you know, non-whites, immigrants, um, you know, all the roster of people as well as the press. So. So different people respond to different things, but um, those are also things that recur. Having an enemy, um, using racism, and seducing people. Yeah, I d so you consider Modi to be, and I'm very ignorant of um, Indian politics. Do you, do you consider him to kind of be a strong man? Is was he? Is he? Do you kind of think of him as a dictator, in a sense? He, he's a you know, when we, like the word dictator, we, we could use it for somebody like Putin. Um, now, nowadays, like you don't, you don't shut down the other parties and you don't shut down entirely the press. So he's an authoritarian for sure. And he's been taking over the media. What, what you do, for example, he just got an ally of his to buy out a very, one of the last independent um, media outlets. And so you get one of your cronies. That's what Putin did very early on in the early 2000s. You get your cronies, the oligarchs, and you can call them different things in different countries, to buy out or take over uh, media properties so that you personally don't... It's not like in Nazi, under Nazism, the state you know, ha owned everything, let's say, all the media. Today, it's more subtle. You have your cronies and your allies who own stuff, the same in Orban's Hungary. So Modi's doing that, and the word that we use is autocratic capture, where you're you're capture like a you're capturing um, the judiciary, you're capturing the media, but it's done in a way that's a little more subtle than in the 20th century. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Now you've you've really piqued my interest here. What what kinds of things? Because I'm I'm um, I'm highly paranoid as it is. Um, so <laughs> in because I don't look at, I look at um, the American media as a, a very fear mongering and, and not very accurate. I don't trust anything they say. But and and I also I also kind of view them as like the, I feel like they also are puppets for the state, whereas like they don't really hit on any. There's not really a lot of negative press towards like you know certain governmental policies. Like and again, also to be fair. I barely watch the news, so maybe that's going on, and I just have no idea. But I mean, I feel like two point, like the the Pentagon losing track of two point one trillion dollars in assets would be like a huge story, but it's really not. And that that so, in your in your opinion, where are you seeing? certain signs like that within the United States, right? Like, is, is this something that you think that we're, this isn't happening or is this something that you think is definitely happening? Well, no, it's not happening in that way because, well, right now we have a Democrat who's not trying to, to, it's very difficult. It'd be very difficult in this country because for example, 
um, our, one of our oligarchs is, is Murdoch, who owns Fox News, and which is a very, very powerful propaganda outlet. It's, it works very efficiently. It really does. And it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for any president, even a Trump, to try and take him over. He's more powerful than, in a sense, any president mm -hmm. um, in, in, a, in a way, right? So it, it, that kind of thing that's easy in Hungary or even in India is a lot more difficult here. What I see happening in media is the media was very traumatized under Trump. I mean, because here's, here's one of the things he did as a demagogue. So plenty of people already hated immigrants. Plenty of people didn't, whites didn't like black people. They didn't like Jews and Muslims, et cetera. But, and they maybe, some of them distrusted the press, but he made the press a hate object. At those rallies, he, you know, penned them up and had people jeer at them and say, lock them up. And so the press, and there was a lot of violence and threats against the press that continue. And so he really, um, he, and that's what all, that's another sign I was like, uh-oh, check. Because they have to go after the press and make people think they're just partisan hacks because when the press exposes their corruption, they need people to hate the press and not believe the press. So they all do that. Duterte did it in the Philippines. It's like, literally is like a checklist. So Trump did that. And so the media, now he's been gone for a while, but they're very scarred, uh, the, even the big outlets. And so look what's happening at CNN, which came under intense scrutiny. Um, you know, Jim Acosta was attacked, you know, by Trump and lost his press pass, had to sue. And so now there's this thing going on where they're preventively moving to the center uh, under Chris Licht, this new boss. And um, that's something that they're being self-protective, but I don't think that's in their interest. I think it's going to restrict further the kinds of things they cover eventually so that uh, they're almost like it's they're preparing for the GOP to come back and attack them again. And they want to be uh, not in CNN's case, they don't want to be as liberal. So that kind of thing is going on. Yeah, I think that you definitely one of the self-censorship, right, from in any aspect is a is a giant problem um you know because that you we definitely i think the american people everyone really wants the the raw truth um and we're, in my opinion i think we're seeing that less and less as days you know as, as, as time marches on but um you know there's there's still there's a lot of really good independent journalists that 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 are you know disseminating news you know ford fisher he's a friend of the show he's he's been on and and but that is that's very interesting and you you mentioned something about the courts right like uh that's what is that like phase three is is kind of controlling the, the legal system yeah you know what's happening um i'm no i'm not an expert in the judiciary but we've seen how the supreme court um in particular that the, the attitudes and actions of Justice Thomas, where his wife was like an insurrectionist. She was, you know, exchanging text messages, egging on the overthrow of the government, and he didn't recuse himself. And he was actually, what, they were very interested in her, um, the, the DOJ, and he, right then he started, he announced that he was exploring, um, uh, trying to make it, uh, harder for the media to uh, defend itself against uh, libel cases. So basically, you have these signs and also the way that they did the Dobbs ruling. They've become an activist court um, because there's so many ultra-conservative people. But Justice Thomas is really um, just showing that he's not interested in democratic, with a small d, notions of fairness, objectivity, rule of law, and... Um, that's very disturbing. So, so in so that's what you know. We have Biden in power, who's a Democrat. So it's not a question of somebody taking over the judiciary like Orban does. What, and what that means is you appoint, you force out judges who are not um, your friends, and you harass them. Or you, we've had this in this country. There's scores of people have been resigning from election workers, all kinds of public positions. And then you appoint people who are going to be, you know, 
do what you need them to do. Yeah. So like the reason, one of the reason Trump's coup attempt didn't work is over 60 judges in the fall of 2020, including many Trump appointees, would would not, um, they didn't want to fix his, you know, go with his rigged election thing. And they turned back his attempts to change um, to change the results, over 60 judges. Now, would that happen today? I, I don't know, but that's, that's what the Republicans have been working on, getting rid of these judges who aren't gonna do their bidding. Um, and the same with the GOP politicians, people who have been standing up to Trump, like Liz Cheney, they're out now. There's no room for them anymore. And then the new people coming in are, um, even if they're not for Trump right now, they're a lot of them are criminals. I mean, they're like, you know, members of Oath Keepers. Um, so they're, they're just people who are very lawless, a lot of the new people coming in. So it's like a cultural, it's like a shift in the political culture and it affects the judiciary, it affects the, the political parties, the civil service, all of that. Most definitely. This is very interesting. I, I'm, I'm fascinated because I've, I've never looked at it um, through the same lens that you have, right? When and towards that point in time, um, I'm really good at identifying certain characteristics that I have. So when I looked at Trump towards the end, I saw myself in him. The worst aspects of myself, nonetheless, but I was like, I would probably be doing the exact same thing. Like, I don't want to lose. How do I hold on to power? But when you think about, like, the the, the way that... This, whatever, the enigma that is Trump kind of turned the country on itself. And you had, you know, these devout, pe- these these loyalists, and you had mm-hmm. this insurrection. And then and not only that, you also had, like, the, the getting the judges in place. Like, that is very meticulously planned. And I, I wonder if it's by design. Is he that smart? Mm-hmm. Or is it kind of a happy coincidence? <laughs> um, I, will, I will also comment on the Clarence Thomas thing. Not a lot of people know, you know, that he's been in bed with Monsanto and that his wife is kind of crazy, like ultra, ultra, <laughs> ultra conservative human beings. Yeah. And and the way that they're able to kind of <clears throat> manipulate these, not necessarily these laws or the, the readings of the laws is, is fascinating mm-hmm. to me. Like there's certain aspects that, you know, I'm inclined to be like, Oh, that's interesting. I like that. I like States rights. Um, or I like, I like where you're going, but, but, but when you, when you kind of look at, if you read into kind of their history and all these groups that they're, that they're a part of, it gets it gets a little interesting. So kudos to you for, for knowing about One of the other things Senior about Clarence Thomas, Thomas as well is, uh, I believe it was for the uh, Roe v. Wade decision. He wrote his own uh, opinion. And, opinion, and it, yes. He, yeah, he had, he had said that, like, to, to revisit things like Obergefell for, uh, you know, marriage equality, and I forget the name of the case, but for the, in, the interracial marriage, which is insane considering that he's a black man married to a very white woman. Yeah, but, I, but it, like, in his opinion, it's not so... And again, I'm not saying whether I agree or not, but, like, it's, I think... What he's saying is maybe his goal in life is to make the government smaller and leave that up to states. But this is, John, we've had this. Is it is it morally correct to undo all of this? And doesn't that cause more problems? I think that at the end of the day, we can all agree it probably does. And we should just kind of leave things the way they are. But um, I don't want to get, we'll get lost in the weeds there. But um, yeah, so... I just didn't know. Um, you're the, probably the first guest I've had on that has is, is talked about uh, that, and I thought that was, that was pretty cool. Yeah, for your question, which a lot of people ask me, is like, is there a design, you know, there, or is like Trump, make, did he make it up as he was going along? Um, it's a little of both, because what one thing that really scared me that I didn't know before I was researching the book is, so Trump is an opportunist, like all these guys, Putin. And so they, they will say anything to anyone, they will be anything they need to be, and they can reverse their positions. And so in that sense, they're, they're always looking for what they should do to survive. It's all about them. It's all they care about is them. They don't actually often care about their own families. They're just, just them and money and power and survival. But he surrounded himself 
really early on with people who had decades of experience wrecking democracies. And I, I had not um, realized that. So Roger Stone and Paul Manafort, um, they had a lobby firm from the 1980s that worked for a lot of dictators. <laughs> and they, in 1985, they were hired by Ferdinand Marcos, like the dictator in Philippines, because he was, he wasn't, he was starting to lose power and he was worried about it. So he decides to have this like snap election. And he was, you know, basically like, a, and, and they were, he hired them to basically pull off this fraudulent election in 1985. So here are people who were ended up being involved with Stop the Steal. And then of course, Manafort also worked for Putin before he worked for Trump. So these are people who have been doing these things, including election fraud and stuff for years, for like 40 years. And then there's Steve Bannon who admires all you know, right-wing dictators and well, actually all dictators, all, all people of power and is a very skilled propagandist and strategist who is advising, all, he was advising Bolsonaro. I mean, these are people who really know what they're doing and understand how power works and what you have to do um, to capture power. And, and so, in fact, a week after the inauguration of Trump, when they, you remember how, how he, he, he gets into office and they immediately do the so-called Muslim ban on travel? Yeah. And there was a lot of chaos. I got this like vision uh, where I said, oh my God, I know what they're doing. And this was Bannon, this was, this, he was the mastermind. And there's this thing called, I call it shock events in the book, where you come in and you shock the system and B Bannon has written about this and you create a lot of chaos. You create a lot of um, anxiety and throw everything again into chaos. And that's how you introduce that this is gonna be a different kind of government. You set the tone, you make sure that everyone understands yeah. what's so up. So they're called shock events. And in fact, on purpose, they implemented that Muslim ban without telling the TSA or the port authorities because they wanted to have a lot of chaos. And I wrote this um, op-ed for CNN and I'm amazed they published it. And the title was Trump and Bannon's Coup in the Making. And it was about how they were gonna start capturing the state. Um, and this was a week after the inauguration and I laid it all out. And when I go back and look at it, I'm like, oh my God, it all, it was like all happening, you know? And I don't know how I saw it. I think just from studying fascists for so long, because I, I, I was writing my book. I hadn't finished my book then. I just got a sixth sense. And so Bannon, has, he's a big fan of Mussolini, probably likes Hitler, and he has studied all of these game plans. So, you know, Trump knows who to surround himself with. Um, and those are the people who, like, have the wisdom. Um, and they helped him. And think about January 6th, he had Michael Flynn, who is very skilled, you know, psychological warfare and other things. He had Roger Stone again, he had Bannon, he had all kinds of experts in authoritarian this and that helping him. What, what do you think are the chances that Trump is able to secure the nomination in, you know, 24? Is it 24? Yeah, 24, I think. I, I, it doesn't look good. Yeah. Um, and s some months ago, I had this, I, I've, uh, I've been writing a lot about Ron DeSantis because unfortunately for us, um, the minute I saw that guy um, and I know, knew nothing about Florida politics, but just as Trump stood out to me and I was like, uh-oh, it's not good. Ron DeSantis, I got a very bad feeling. So I started writing about him. And in fact, several people in his entourage have blocked me um, <laughs> months ago <laughs> on Twitter. Um, but I've probably written about six pieces and I'm gonna keep writing about this man. 
because um, he unfortunately has the strongman tendencies. And what we're going, we're living through this phenomenon where Trump is too much of a loose cannon. He's got too much baggage and no one has as much baggage as Trump. No one could possibly have the amount of baggage of Trump except Berlusconi in Italy. Um, So there's sex assaults, there's money laundering, there's, you know, God knows what with Putin, there's, it's it's endless. It's it's dozens and dozens of crimes, right, Mm -hmm. over decades. So nobody could be that criminal in so many ways. So what happens is that other people who could be equally extremist and racist, but they don't have all that baggage, they look okay in comparison. So so the enter Ron DeSantis, who has done already a lot of extremely authoritarian things in his state. He's clearly like using Florida as a little, you know, laboratory, like those sham arrests of people. I mean, it's just, I I could go on for an hour about this, but the the big picture, which is very scary, is that people think, oh, we're going to go for Ron DeSantis because he's normal. Well, he's not normal. He's 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 extremist, he's racist, but he's going to seem more normal than Trump because that's not hard to seem more normal than Trump. So to answer your question, he's positioned in a good place to get that nomination and people are turning their backs on Trump, who's just too problematic, right? Yes. And yeah, just one, let me just say one more thing. Oh, please. Unfortunately for us though, when somebody with Trump's personality feels humiliated or rejected, their response is to become way more disruptive and destructive. And that's why he's like, I'm gonna have, you know, I'm gonna have uh, Nazis to dinner. I'm gonna have like the most extreme people. I'm gonna like love them and hang around with them. Um, So it's not clear what he's gonna do, but it's not gonna be good for America if he feels that everybody's forsaking him. That'll be interesting to watch. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's exhausting. Cause I, it's exhausting just, is right. We don't have any options. Cause I, I mean, I hate all politicians. Um, and I just, I don't know. I don't know what to do. You know, there's no, I, I, I don't know, you know, the, the, I'm politically homeless, and I feel like a lot of people feel that way. We just don't have a lot of options or, you know, Rick and I have had many conversations both on the show and off the show about Ron DeSantis because I have been kind of trying to uh, sound the alarm on Ron DeSantis because I got from, I had never heard of him until the pandemic. And just like you said, Ruth, like I got immediately bad vibes the minute I saw him. And have been following, trying to follow him closely because I've been trying to tell all of my, uh, you know, all the people I know, they're just like, oh, well, at least DeSantis isn't crazy like Trump. And I'm like, no, you should be more, you should be more scared of him than Trump, I think. So what the GOP wants is um, a more disciplined extremist. And and Ron DeSantis isn't, so Ron DeSantis isn't going to say, I could stand on Fifth Avenue and shoot someone. He's not that dumb to say that. Although that was like a big reason people love Trump. But now you see when you've had a Trump, the culture has changed. All the extreme, I mean, look at the amount of extremists who are now actually GOP lawmakers. Look at the hate crimes toward every category of, of person who is not white and Christian have skyrocketed. And so Trump has done his He's already done his thing, and now the culture can be ready for a DeSantis, but uh, that's going to be, maybe he's going to do things in a quieter manner, but believe me, the end result is not going to be good. But so to me, right, let's, it feels like, because I'm, I feel, and I don't, how do I say this? I don't want to get into teams because I think that that's politically why. Like, and I just want to ask: you don't think that anyone that's a member of the GOP is like a fascist or anything like that? You don't think that all Republicans are like extremists, do you? I think that I, there's the party and there's voters. Mm-hmm. The party has become a kind of 
authoritarian party. Uh, Unfortunately, that's how it is. And the people who don't fit in with that anymore are being cast out or are leaving voluntarily or run out like Liz Cheney, they're going. And so the party, the elites, the official party is, is pretty, I don't use the F word very often, but it's pretty fascistic at this point. But Republican voters, tens of millions of them, no, they're not all extremists. People vote for, we only have, the, one of our big problems in this country, we only have these two friggin' parties. Yeah. Other countries, they have lots of parties. And if you don't like where one party's going, you have like two or three other options. Yes. So that's why I never brand all Republicans. There are people who's like, they've, their family's been voting Republican for generations, and it's really hard for them to vote Democrat. It doesn't mean that they're fascists. Um, although, look, I mean, I'm a bit of a hardliner because of the things I study. If, if, you're, if you're voting for a racist party that is okay with all kinds of things, you know, hate things, then that's, for me, that's a bit of a problem. I don't know. And I don't know, again, it's, this isn't an area of expertise for me. So, you know, there's, there's a, there's a side of me that wants to push back, right? Cause there's a lot of policies that, um, that the Republicans have that I might, I might be, I'm more of a right leaning person just cause I like smaller government and a whole myriad of things. So, but you know, it's, so it's, it's tough, right? In, the, in that in that aspect, um, mm-hmm. I think that all everyone, all of any politician, is super corrupt. We've got a lot of problems here, but it's hard for me to to accept, right? That the the, the party that you think is kind of fascistic. I'm I'm I see your point, but then you know, if I talk to someone that is maybe a little bit more conservative leaning they would feel that the other party is more communistic right like uh, what i'm trying to do is discern truth you know but the thing the whole thing there is no communism in america there's there's no this whole left thing is every every right-wing uh party and government has invented this like communist threats yes and some places there are lively left wings america is not one of them i myself get hate mail where they say you're a commie i'm not a communist i've never been i hate communism yeah. i mean i hate all authoritarianism i hate fascism and i hate communism but they need what's happened with this is called polarization you can't have a liberal center anymore everybody has to be commies and here a prediction for all, everybody you're going to have commies 24 7 throughout yeah, 2023 on fox news it's all going to be about commies and in fact, I've now been put on this professor watch list, which is run by Turning Point USA, oh, really? um, as a like radical Marxist. I am not, like, believe me, I'm not a radical Marxist. Um, <laughs> I, or Antifa, you know, I'm a, I am a proud anti-fascist, but I'm not an Antifa you're not, a mem- you're not a member of any organization. You just you study fascism. No. You do not like it. I'm with so you. So the commie thing is a complete invention. Um, and unfortunately, the, the, the GOP is hammering this home. And you have to have, in order to have an um, authoritarian government, you have to have a commie scare. That's just, it's always been that way. Every case study I've done over 100 years you have a commie scare, and then you come in. In fact, DeSantis, ding, checklist. He just started this new holiday, the holiday for victims of communism. Uh-huh. And I was like, well, what about, this is what got me blocked by somebody. I was like, well, okay, that's, that's good. I hate authoritarianism, but where's the holiday for victims of fascism? You got these neo-Nazis like saluting on Florida boulevards and you're not doing anything about it. Where's, where's the holiday for victims of fascism? And they didn't like that. Um, so this, 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 this is number one. This is a great conversation because I'm very, I like my my main mission. Right is dialogue. Right, I want us to have dialogue, and 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 I can. The thing that scares me the most is how fractured we are, and how yeah. we're having a tough time discerning truth 
because we don't trust any of our institutions anymore. And that's a huge, it's a huge problem. And I'm not sure how we mm-hmm. fix that. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how we can all, I mean, we're, we all have far more in common than we do. And that, that was one of the things that, you know, I have issues with people that um, may have been like super big Trump fans. Like, he's just like us. I'm like, he's a billionaire, dude. Like, he is nothing like you. Or, you know, <laughs> the fact that, you know, there are certain people that, you know, believe that, um, you know, more government is, is and this is a personal, is more government is good. If like everything they touch turns to crap. Like we got to find some way that we can come to, like, some way to talk to yeah. each other again and some way to, to be, become rest, less radical. And I don't necessarily see a way out of where we are. You know? And I don't know yeah, if you, you're right. you do as well. No, the bridge building stuff, If we, it's really, really important. But that's why, unfortunately, what's, that's why the, I, I got testy when you said commies because the Fox News and Associated Media Universe and the GOP itself is trying very hard to get people into this survivalist mentality to think that they can't talk to the other side because they're just commies, they're pedophiles. Um, and that's so dangerous because you're right, we need bridge building. We have a lot in common and there are forces pushing us apart. And I'm singling out Fox News and Tucker Carlson because he's he is a fascist demagogue. I, I will use the F word for him. Um, he has mentioned great replacement theory, which is the fear that you know, whites are ex- being extinguished by non-whites 400 times, 400 times on his show. So that's like, boom, 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 indoctrinate people, make them scared of non-whites, make them scared of immigrants. So the latest thing will be commies, just watch. And so I will receive more hate mail, people will try and get me fired because and that's just my own micro universe, but that's, that's just so that people will think they can't talk to me and I don't have anything to say to them. And instead, bridge building and speaking, uh, agreeing to disagree, but being civil is, that's democracy. And then be very suspicious of people who want to demonize other people so that that cuts off conversation. I I could not agree with you more. And I do, I do get a, I do get a sense, right? Like, there's, I think that another major factor that we have is there's a giant divide between urban America, people that live in cities, and then like rural America. Yeah. And I yeah. do feel like people that are, you know, that are more more rural, right? They feel like they don't have representation. And sometimes, like, you know, in the state that I live in, there there will be laws passed that aren't necessarily good for people that live in, in a, in a rural place. And so they're, it's, it's easy for them to be not necessarily radicalized. I don't like that word, but to be more angry and not feel Mm -hmm. represented, represented. And I don't, again, I don't know how we solve that. I feel like they do believe that their way of life is, is kind of under attack. And if you look at it from their perspective, it, it does seem that it is, right? Um, but that's why Trump was such a genius in coming to exactly those people and saying, you've been forgotten, no one has cared about you. Um, and he consciously like addressed himself to rural people. Mm-hmm. And that's why also the, the whole thing about the cities are burned out hell holes. And that's starting again. That's been starting again with Fox News. Mm-hmm. And you should see the number of, hate mails i get people judging me and they're like oh you teach at nyu you know instead of nyu but the city you know i'm in the city so i must be this um, i'm the commie i'm the jewish commie and and so but the rural urban divide is a big deal it is it's actually a big deal in many places where authoritarianism comes in you can oh sorry so i was just gonna say that's a big failing of the Democratic Party that it has not known most most people, but John Fetterman, who won in Pennsylvania, he's an exception. He knows how to talk to people, um, and he knows he gets it. But Democrats have been a little too elitist, and they have not um, taken people's suffering seriously in rural places. 
And that's not hurt. That has hurt them. Most definitely. And and another thing, like from my, my point of view, I definitely, I think I definitely have leanings that are definitely towards the right, but it, I, and it's, I love that you pointed out a, um, you know, a, a flaw, right? I, I did, you know, I'm, I, I'm sympathetic. I'm, sympath- I'm, I'm a more, more of a rural person, right? I'm, I'm from a rural, I have a rural background. Um, but it, I do think it, it's correct to, and I, I don't trust any, any, any mainstream media, but it, it is funny how even I, uh, was a bit susceptible, right? I used communist, like I used a kind of a buzzword, um, um, in speaking with Ford Fisher, I said extremist at one point and he said, no, I like to use the word activist because extremist has a, a negative content. I want to understand these people. So thanks for, for pointing that out. Um, and I also appreciate, um, when you're you're very careful to throw around the f word you i think that that that's i think that's also a big problem is throwing a nazi fash any of that around too mm-hmm. much it 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 takes power away from it and it's hard for me who's trying to discern truth it's really hard mm-hmm. for me to to um to listen it it, it it's like you you cry wolf too many times and that's a very serious connotation and that you know to me if you're either one of those things i don't like you and i don't know if i can change your mind i think you it might be too late for me to try and change your mind and so um i think i I think the work that you're doing is very important and it's very valuable and i love that you you want to to build bridges i think that we we have we've got to do that because i have a friends, we engage in political discussions from time to time, and, and some of them do think that, you know, maybe in our lifetimes we might see some sort of conflict or something arise because we can't figure out how to talk to each other. And I'm I'm wondering, do you get that same sense, or do you think that, you know, that's that's something that we're just being paranoid about? No, I mean, definitely there's an uptick in political violence. Look at look at I mean, look at what happened to Nancy Pelosi's husband. They were looking for her. Mm-hmm. It was like a, that was like an extension of January 6th. And we had January 6th. I mean, people are like, they still haven't even digested January 6th. It's, it's unbelievable. I, I had to look at pictures of it today. And I every time I feel sick to my stomach, I just, I just can't. And I study this stuff and I just can't even with January 6th. And um, so this is why I'm so worried about this demonization by Republicans of Democrats saying they're pedophiles, they're commies, they're this, because that leads people to be um, seen as uh, people you have to use violence against. That's the problem. And when you stop talking, you start shooting. And, and then the, the, big, the big wild card in our country, which other countries don't have, is 400 million guns in private hands. And so that's whether you, and this is not a discussion about whether you think somebody should have, you know, my dad kept a handgun at home. Um, he's an he's a ex-military. And so, but this is about assault weapons availability when you're in a situation of extreme polarization. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to get more buffaloes, um, somebody, you know, influenced by uh, radical right extremist racism and goes and shoots up African-American supermarket. Um, you're going to get more and more of those things because yeah. that's the other, um, that's the unpredictable part versus the history of such situations. Yes. Yeah, I think that potentially you and I might have polar opposite views on that, and that's okay. But yeah, that's okay. It is okay. Um, I mean, yeah. So, but let's take out the gun part and the when in the history of uh, political violence, the what what demagogues have done before to get people in a situation to do harm to their neighbors or to groups of people who have the wrong religion or skin color, whatever, is you have to do this demonization. Um, So we can leave out the guns because it could be stabbings. It could, whatever the heck Mm -hmm. they're doing. All right. But you've got to be, you've got to have this mass demonization of an enemy. 
Um, and in military dictatorships I write about in my book, it was commies. Um, anybody left, so socialists or just Islamic, whatever left thing you were, you were commie. And you had to be exterminated or locked up or tortured. Um, obviously for fascists, it was Jews as mm -hmm. well as commies. So that I watch very carefully signs by people like Tucker Carlson of trying to get um, Americans in a mood to just see people in one way and think that the only way to deal with those people is violence. That's what I'm tracking. It's a good thing. It's a good thing to track. When when you it's scary, it is. It is scary. I, I do have a a question for you, right? Like at the end of the day, do you do you trust the uh, the institution of our government? Like where? Like I, I kind of want to get a sense of how you feel about that. I do. I think it's. It's very important to, now, I mean, it depends what government is there. If you have a demagogue in power, when Trump was in power, I did not trust um, him, obviously. Uh, I still, I know that, for example, there were government agencies that had a lot of honest people in them. And then there were a lot of Trump appointees that were terribly corrupt or violent or whatever. But I think, what we, can, what we can say historically is when people lose faith and trust in all the institutions, including media, that is when it becomes difficult to sustain democracy. Because if you have no faith that the government um, is, is on your side at all in any way, whether it's local government or your town or the federal government, you're more likely to be seduced by uh, an anti-government person, like, because Trump, of course, he became the president, but the beginning, he's the outlaw. He's the rogue. He, in fact, he called his campaign a movement at the beginning. And so you're also more likely to have such a hatred that you are willing to assault the Capitol and kill Capitol Police. Um, because you want to overthrow the government because you hate it so much. And there's a lot of anti-government extremists in our, in our country, too. There's that. Yeah. So that's, if you don't have any trust, who do you trust? You trust your tribe. And sometimes your tribe are people who you only want to, they only think the same things you do. And that's why also QAnon is catching on, like, it's huge now, um, and other conspiracy theories. So, so that's the problem with that. I, I would, I would agree. I would, I would definitely, definitely agree. I, I do want to talk about what happened in Germany. Um, God, was it a week ago? It's about a week ago, right? Yeah. Um, you had essentially there was a coup that was attempted, and um, <clears throat> I, I would like for you to kind of go into that. Is this something that because um, it took me by complete surprise, and I was wondering is that and and for the if you could explain a little bit for our listeners, um, you know, a what was it, and then b did it did it take you by surprise? So it didn't it didn't take by surprise the people who study extremism in Germany. I don't follow it that closely. Um, and this was a group, this was a group that is part of, uh, there are a lot of, uh, extremists, um, in Germany. And in fact, there are many more now because QAnon, during the pandemic, QAnon arrived in Germany and it's the country outside of the U S that is, has the biggest QAnon group, let's say. But these were people who belong to a homegrown sovereign citizen movement. We have sovereign citizen movements here too. And they want to uh, replace the, they want to, you know, they want to do a coup and liberate Germany from democracy and install a fourth Reich because they're also kind of neo-Nazis. So Hitler was the third Reich. They're going to have the fourth Reich. Now what's, what was, um, and there were 25 people were arrested to, so it didn't go anywhere. But what was interesting 
the studies show that these were not, it's, we tend to want to label these people as fringe or extremists, but these, this group included a sitting judge who was a former member of parliament, this aristocratic guy, members of the police, members of the military. So these are people who are kind of, so a lot of German extremist specialists or intelligence officers, um, they said, these are mainstream people. These are not like skinheads, yeah. right? Because that's, and the same is true with January 6th. That's what I wrote today for my newsletter. Um, there, we, we, we want to just label those people as extremists, but all the studies done on who actually was there bashing, you know, breaking the glass and trying to kidnap the, and harm the lawmakers, Republican and Democrat, they were middle class, one, one person's called the middle class and middle age. They were computer programmers, they were architects, they were all kinds of people, people from the military, people from the National Guard. And so again, they're not, these are mainstream people. Yeah. So the new extremism is mainstream. Yeah, I, I thought that they were trying, to, and John, pull this up just for the sake of it. I thought they were trying to install this, a second Reich. It was a the government they were trying t- to institute was one based off of, I think, 1888. We pull that up just to yeah, make sure. That, it's, it's, they, 1871. Yeah, it's 1871. Yeah, they claiming but, that the, the, but there was they no call third it Reich. The fourth Reich. Yeah. I mean, it, yes, it's a recall back to the second Reich when Germany had a monarchy. Yes, That's, yes. But... The, the ideology is this Fourth Reich, because they can't really, the Second Reich already was. The Third Reich was Hitler. So what they want is no more democracy. That's the point. They're called the Reichsburgers. Yes, the Reichsburgers. And no more democracy, restore the monarchy. Um, not all of them believe that, but this group did. And, uh, and, you know, have an authoritarian state that way. Wow. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I definitely, as the elections, as we enter even closer into the election cycle, I, I would, I'm going to have to get you back on there. I, I really, Absolutely. I enjoy talking to you. It is, it is refreshing to, to get someone that has very different opinions and beliefs than I do, but we can still talk. And I learned a lot too. I learned a lot. Me too. I like that. Yeah, we'll definitely talk again. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, you have a book out. But where can people find you? Please, please let the people know. So, um, uh, you can find, I have a website that's www.ruthbengiat.com. And there um, you can sign up for my newsletter called Lucid, L-U-C-I-D. It's a Substack newsletter. Um, and you can read my book called Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present. So, it goes up through Trump. Um, and I'm on Twitter, uh, at, I'm still on Twitter at Ruth Ben Giat. So those are the main places to find me. Well, Ruth, it's, it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks again. And folks, um, you know, let's do more talking, more dialogue and more understanding and put yourself in the other person's shoes, even if you don't agree with them, because the mind is like a parachute. It only works if it's open. Peace and love, friends. See you next week.